Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up in the second half of the program today, we're going to focus on the new Sago Awards, which honor female op- entrepreneurs and business leaders in Utah. We're going to be talking with Allison Liu, founder of Braid, a Utah company that provides workshops for entrepreneurs. She's a co-founder of the Sago Awards. We'll also talk with Jenny Wecker, founder and CEO of Fond Design. She won a Sago Award for fastest growing company under five years. In the first half of the program uh, here, we're going to be talking with Gail Miller, owner of the Larry H. Miller Group of Companies. And in this conversation, we'll talk about motherhood, work-life balance, navigating the business world as a woman after the death of her husband, and finding her voice and identity. Gail Miller is out with a new book, Courage to Be You, Inspiring Lessons from an Unexpected Journey. Gail Miller with uh, Jason Wright there. And Gail Miller is the featured speaker at the annual fundraising dinner coming up from the uh, United Way of uh, Cache Valley. That's on May 24th at the Utah State University Taggart Center uh, Ballroom. And uh, tickets available there. And you can purchase tickets online at unitedwayofcashevalley.org. Unitedwayofcashevalley.org. Gail Miller, a pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be on with you. Uh, so uh, I've been loving the book, um, and uh, I've learned uh, quite a bit here. It seems like there are two Gail Millers, at least two in the book. There's Gail Miller who stood in the hallway of her high school and told Larry Miller to kiss her. That's a nice anecdote. Um, and uh, also the Gail Miller who was uh, sort of suffering an identity crisis. In fact, you you say you went to some counseling to find your identity again. So on the other hand, it seems like losing yourself and building the lives of others was very important. So, what have you learned from uh, both of those women, or there might be more Gail Millers? Well, I think as we go through life, we go through several phases, and I think as a teenager, I probably was quite um, bold. I was a shy person, but I wasn't afraid, and I had a lot of self-confidence, and it, you know, it just blurted out one day in the hallway. <laughs> And then as I went through life, got married, had children, started our business, and could see that what Larry was doing was expanding into an area that I would not be involved with, it worried me some in that he was meeting all kinds of interesting people and developing the company, and I was home raising five little kids with very few adults to talk to of anything important that I expressed to him, you know, you're growing in ways that I'm afraid I'm going to be left behind. And it caused me to feel inadequate, feel like I was not growing, feeling like I had no importance. Of course, I did. I was a mother doing, you know, the important job of a mother. But we get into a feeling sometimes that we are being left behind or not reaching our potential or not having opportunities that would help us grow. And that's kind of where I was, and then when Larry became so well-known and people recognized him everywhere we went, I I felt rather invisible because I was not on the same par as he was. I was supporting him, but never uh, in the limelight, which was fine with me. I didn't want to be in the limelight. I just didn't want to be... I wanted to stay confident that I could carry on a conversation in circles where we were now associating with people on a different level rather than just talking about my kids and what I had for breakfast and that kind of thing. But you say, you write in the book that you feel like it was a partnership. He'd come home, soak in the bathtub, you'd sit next to him and uh, and he'd, he'd discuss the whole day with you. Oh yeah, it was a partnership. It just that in the, uh, in the outside world, I had no confidence that I was on the same pages the people that we were interacting with because mm-hmm. I yeah. didn't have a college education I didn't have a job I didn't have the interaction of associating with people in the business world I had what Larry brought home to me and being a partner in our businesses but not in any important ways that he was dealing with people hmm. yeah that must have been um, uh, I guess nerve-wracking at times how did you negotiate that you, uh, you found that you you could do okay well, it took a long time. I mean, I I felt very unsure of myself, and I felt like uh, I actually almost got panic attacks when we had to go to a social event for fear I wouldn't be able to carry on a conversation. Not that I was dumb. I just wasn't um, 
up on, on things. So I spent time making sure that whenever I did have a conversation with someone, I learned something. I paid attention to how things were done. I watched the news. I kept up on current events. I, I did whatever I could to expand my universe. Hmm. You, you write in the book that marriage is a partnership, and the important thing in any partnership is communication. And it sounds like, like you and Larry did keep those lines of communication open. I think we had a good communication. We didn't always see eye to eye. And because of the roles we played, he was breadwinner, I was the homemaker. They were different roles, but complementary. So we had communication that way. You know, that's one of the areas where I would do things differently. It was I would be better at getting him involved in the family. He was mm-hmm. very good as a breadwinner, but he wasn't all that great as a father and husband because he wasn't home a lot. Mm-hmm. And I would insist that he take on a, a greater part in that role. Yeah, you write in the book, you'd, you would be, I guess you'd be more direct in that. You'd be more forceful about that. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's an interesting point. Um, you, you have no regrets, but you would do some things differently. And I, I think I understand what, you know, if I look at my life, I, I think I understand what you mean. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Well, I think what I mean is I realize that once it's done, you can't really change it, and you can't go back, so there's no point in having a lot of regret about it. That's just frustrating, and it's not productive. But knowing what you learned from the experience and not letting it happen again is where I would make changes. And, of course, uh, as well know, at a certain point you took over the family business. So you say you were prepared for that because you'd been there with uh, Larry for years uh, as a confidant, advisor. And of course, you were a mother, full-time mother. Um, what, what lessons do you think you learned from either of those? Uh, you learn more from one or the other? Well, I think as a mother you learn a lot of lessons that do apply to a business. Like I learned inventory control <laughs> by doing grocery shopping, managing the household, making sure we have what we need. I learned communication skills by raising children and being diplomatic and trying to teach them how to be good citizens. So there are a lot of crossover things between motherhood and business that are you can apply when you're dealing with people in a, in a business setting. So I think as, as I've come over to the business side, those things come more naturally to me than they would have, I think, if I hadn't come the way I did. Hmm. You, uh, you say success is a personal thing, is different for everyone, and as, quoting from you, uh, you say, I've been poor, I've been rich, but none of that really matters because I'm the same person either way. What if you talk about that attitude? Think that that's contributed to your success? I think that is very true for me. I feel like I could be happy if I lost everything today. Now, that doesn't mean I would want to lose it. I, like everyone, prefer having money to not having money because it gives you security, but it isn't what defines me. I have a set of values that I live by, and those are the things that are foundational to me, and they apply whether I'm rich or poor. And so that's what I mean by I'm the same person. Money has not changed who I am or how I feel about the basic things of life, relationships, um, how to do things, my religion, uh, my companionship with my husband. Those are things that are value-based, and um, that's pretty strong in me. It does seem like money does change some people, but you, you feel like it's values. It's it's that core that's that's kept you the same. Right. I really do. And you're right. For me, money has never been about things. It's always been about people. Right. I've never wanted a lot of things. I remember when I got my first job, I worked at the telephone company, and I was a senior in high school. And when you're in high school, of course, you want the latest fashions. You want to be able to go on your graduation trip. You want to be able to do what your friends are doing. But with me, having grown up the way I did, it was more important to me to have a job than to have the things the job could provide because the job itself, was security to me. And I still made all my own clothes. I still cut my own hair. I did not go on a senior trip because I had just gotten my job and I didn't want to jeopardize losing it. I also used the money that I earned to help my family with. 
because we there were a lot of things we didn't have. And now that I had a steady job, I was able to to do things like buy my mom a washer and dryer and buy myself a bedroom set, things that were sensible and not frivolous. Another quote from you in the book. By the way, we're talking with Gail Miller. Her new book is from Deseret Book, Courage to Be You, Inspiring Lessons from an Unexpected Journey. And she's the uh, keynote speaker at the uh, United Way of Cash Valley Annual Fundraising Dinner. That's on May 24th at the USU Taggart uh, Center Ballroom on the USU campus. Tickets are available to that. It helps out the uh, United Way of Cash Valley. Uh, You can purchase tickets at their website, unitedwayofcashvalley.org, unitedwayofcashvalley.org. And that book, as I mentioned, is available and out now, Gail Miller's book, Courage to Be You. So, Gail Miller, uh, quoting again from the book, um, going without might be a better measure of success than having it all. And you had several periods in your life when you did go without. I wonder if you could talk about how that shaped your experience and the person you've become. Yes, I can talk about that. I I often reflect on the times in my life where I had very little or nothing, especially growing up and knowing that I couldn't ask to go to girls' camp because I knew my parents couldn't afford it or I couldn't ask for a new dress or a dance because uh, I had to earn the money for it myself or not being able to experience things like maybe my friends did. But what it did, it made me resourceful because... I I can sew. I I learned to make all my own clothing. Uh, Actually, what I learned to do is be a problem solver. If there was a need, I could find a way to fill it. And if there was something broken, I could fix it. If there was something we had to do with that, I could find a way to do without it. You know, it it just turned me into a person that, that knows how to do things that I otherwise may not have ever learned. Hmm. Your parents uh, seem like they were hardworking folks. They, they got married in 1929. Um, they had 1928. They had their first child in 1929. And then the Depression hit, and they had five children during the Depression, and I was the sixth. And so they struggled their whole marriage. They could never quite get out from under that. My father left school in the eighth grade. My mother graduated, but she never worked outside the home because my father didn't feel like that was right for his wife to work, and it was his job to support the family. So he struggled a lot, did a lot of odd jobs, nothing really um, that made money for the family. You know, a lot of times it was um, waiting for him to bring a bag of groceries home. Hmm. And you you have a chapter in the book about uh, hard work. And I wonder, uh, you know, Larry was known as an incredibly hard worker, 100 hours a week, you know. (laughs) I wonder how you... What would you say to people about about a balance? Well, I, I think hard work is great. I think it's very important to know how to work hard and the value of work. Um, I think also you need to learn to work smart so that you don't have to always be working. Mm-hmm. So I think the two um, together make a good balance. But you have to have other things in your life as well. Work is You have to learn how to play, and that's one thing I struggle with because I don't quite know how to play yet, but I'm working on it. You're you're working on it, okay? Right. <laughs> well, that's that's good, and and you know we're always working on things. Um, and you make reference to the title of Larry's book, Driven. I mean, there you know he had an incredible drive. Sounds like you've got quite the drive as well. And I, it, I wonder if the, the passed down to your kids. I think so. I think they're all pretty dedicated to what they do and very um, very capable people, good citizens, work hard. Uh, they play hard, though. They've learned some things that we didn't. They have a lot more toys than we had. <laughs> that, I don't know. There might be, you know, generational thing that certain generations, you, you, you maybe learn some yeah. of those things. I wonder, uh, you quote Larry. Larry used to say that the public perception was that everything he touched turned to gold. Like That's kind of been my perception. In reality, he and I had plenty of failures, you say. And those things are not as interesting, I suppose. Um, so I wonder about that. Do you... You have a memorable failure. What what have you learned from the failures? Well, one that you can identify with maybe is the racetrack. Um, we built a racetrack out in Twila. He originally thought it might cost seven million dollars. It was designed to be a playground because he owned race cars and he wanted to be able to have a place he could go race them whenever he wanted. And it just never penciled. Instead of being a playground, it became an albatross eventually sold that. Utah is not a race 
territory. It's hard to get enough people to come out and watch a race, and the model's bad. We started um, a chain of C-stores, uh, Pro Stop, and we didn't lose money at it, but we're not good at that, so we got out of that. There have been other things like that. Mm. And you think those those uh, going through those? You mentioned entrepreneurial spirit. You gotta you gotta risk, right? You gotta you gotta try things, and then you some right. some will fail, some will succeed. You learn from it. That's true. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the jazz. I was very interested in uh, this sense. You 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 say kind of as an aside. You say I meaning you I have the final say on who plays for the jazz if I want to exercise it. Um, well, I am the owner. So. Yeah, that's right. You are you are the yeah. owner. Uh, how would you Thing say? Is, I'm, I'm smart enough to know better. Yeah, there are some owners who who aren't that smart. I've always admired the jazz culture, the culture that. Uh, I'm sure you know Larry had a hand in. You've had a hand in. The, the management has had a hand in. Uh, it is it is quite admired around the league. Well, it's a culture that's been deliberately developed because it comes from our four values that are uh, in our business. They are hard work, integrity, stewardship, and service. We have built the franchise on values that we believe in, and we have insisted that. As we acquire players, they, they have character, and Dennis, Lindsay, Quinn Snyder, they buy into that, they like it, they teach their players that, and it, it makes a difference. They mm. know what we expect, and they help to promote that and build it. Here's another quote from the, from the book. When we win a title, and we will, you say, we'll do it the right way. Good guys don't always finish last. Um, so I wonder if that you know, applies to the jazz. Uh, could apply to you and your family. What... What made you the good guys who didn't finish the last? Well, by good guys, I mean people who do things the right way. I remember when Larry played fast pitch softball, it was a non-professional league, and you were not supposed to pay your players to pitch or play ball for you. But some of the teams in the league found ways to, to do that illegally, and they would win championships because they would buy the best players. We didn't ever believe in that. We we did go far enough that we would provide jobs for them to earn a living if they would pitch for us, but we didn't just pay them. And so consequently, we always came in second or third and not first. Mm. But I think with the Jazz, we are at a point in our career where we have the money to be able to do things that provide the equipment and the resources like a practice facility and a great arena and money for good players uh, as the cap raises, uh, that we can acquire those players and train them in a way that will help us reach our goal of reaching a championship. You don't want to play every year and never get there. You've got to have the idea that someday you're going to reach that pinnacle. Yeah, so you, you, you believe that they'll get there someday? Yes, I believe they will. I think we're we're doing everything we can. We've just got to get the right combination at the right time. And we have a great team this year. And it doesn't mean it's the team, but we have a really good core that we can build on. And I think we'll keep, we'll keep growing. Hmm. This team hasn't been to their playoffs before. I think that's one element that makes a big difference is having been to the playoffs and knowing what it's all about and the, the intensity that comes with it is different than the regular season. So now they've experienced that, I think it will be beneficial next year. I want to have you talk a little bit about this uh, this line. A journalist once asked me, you said, Gail, what has been your biggest trial or test of your patience? You smiled and said, Larry. <laughs> and then you <laughs> quickly amended your answer, but he's also my biggest blessing and I, I, you know, we, I think we smile in recognition about our families that way. Uh, I, I wonder, I wonder, you know, what um, the, the the trials and the blessings there. What, uh, what, what did you mean by trial? And what did you mean by blessing? Well, trials are uh, as we build our business. He was not there a lot. Also, the fact that he always was working on something new. And I would say, why do you want more? Why are you buying another dealership? Why are you building a track? Why are you making? this investment and until he explained it to me correctly it was hard for me to understand but when he said because I can create jobs for people to have good lives then it made perfect sense 
besides the fact that he was very entrepreneurial and that was what he did, it still was hard for me because I needed a husband to help raise the children. And that's a trial when you can't reconcile that and still want to be supportive and and be uh, compatible. So that's a trial. Um, Blessings are that he provided very well for the family. He taught good lessons. He loved us all. He he wanted. He was a good person. So it's you know everybody goes through those things. I'm not alone in that. And you're you're uh, remarried now. I think that's uh, so. You know, you never set out to say, okay, I'm going to lose my first spouse and going to going to remarry. What lessons or uh, what advice would you would you give to people uh, embarking on a second marriage? Oh, I I think. I think you have to be very deliberate. I um, had not ever intended to remarry, and I had known my second husband for a long time, and he knew Larry, and it, it, his wife died shortly after Larry passed away, and I knew her. And so it was not a difficult decision to make because it was comfortable. If I had had to go find somebody that I didn't know and start anew, I probably wouldn't have ever remarried because you don't know what their motives are or... You know, it's it's just hard. And so suggestions I would make are get to know the person very well before. Kim and I used to write down lists of things we wanted to talk about, and we'd have long, long discussions so that we, we knew whether we were compatible and what we agreed on and what we had difficulty with. I think it's important to take the time you need to do all the things that make it comfortable before you take that big step. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about fame. Um, of course, on this side of it, Larry H. Miller is famous. Gail Miller is famous. I was fascinated to read that uh, at a certain point, uh, you and uh, Larry are being uh, sealed, as LDS call it, in the temple, and the the officiator uh, says, Larry H. Miller become a famous name. Yeah, we were too. <laughs> we were rather shocked because at that point we'd only been in business for a year and had not done our own advertising, were not known in the community, and we had no idea what he was talking about and didn't for a long time and often wondered was there something we were being prepared for. Hmm. But I think it it wasn't so much what we were being prepared for as it was we were being prepared to do. To do what? What? What do you think you were supposed to do? Well, I think we were supposed to be good stewards of the assets that we had that Heavenly Father entrusted with us. Hmm. That we could, we would do good things with our success, with our wealth, and not um, not just hoard it. Hmm. And what? How did? Uh, how did Larry? And how did? How did you? And how do you navigate that? Uh, being a well-known person. Well, it's not all that difficult in a small town like. Salt Lake. If I had to live in Hollywood and be a famous person, I thought, I'm not sure I could do it. The way I do it is I watched it happen to Larry, so I knew what to expect because I didn't have, I didn't ever have that kind of recognition while Larry was alive. But since he's passed away, and I've stepped into somewhat of his role, and I do a lot of speaking, and I do a lot of public appearances, and I've gotten involved in civic things, it's put me in a a limelight where people do recognize me, especially with the advertising that I do for our company. And so having watched what it did to him, I I try to be graceful about it and and accept it um, as part of what's going on today. And Salt Lake's really a wonderful place to live because people are not intrusive, they're just kind. Mm. Oh, and how did he? Do? I guess there were some, maybe some growing pains with that with him, or was he, or not? I don't know. No, I don't think so. I think he he learned to do it well as as well. I think one of his hallmarks was he was a person who could relate on all levels. He could just as easily shake the hand of a child as he could talk with Margaret Thatcher, and everything in between. So he was comfortable no matter where he was. Because it was just him. You write movingly in the book about losing your father. Um, of course, you. I'm not, I'm not sure if your mother is still with you, but uh, losing your husband. How do you? How do you? How do you deal with those things? Well, the basic faith that I have 
um, my religion prepared me a lot for, for the eventual loss. And then with, with my father, he had a stroke, and he was ill for two years before he passed away. So you do a lot of mourning during that time because you know he's not going to get better. And the same thing with Larry. He was sick for a long time. So you, uh, you deal with that. But the thing that makes it all possible is knowing that it's not the final end that you still have work to do and you're still going to be together and you're going to have a future in in the eternities. And I firmly believe that. I know all people don't, or not all people do. But for me, that's what gave me the comfort and the ability to handle the death that I've experienced. I actually feel hopeful rather than depressed at a death. Hmm. Hopeful rather than depressed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, having had the experience now, of course, you write in the beginning of the book, you, you didn't, uh, you know, growing up, you didn't say, hey, I'm going to grow up and write a book. But uh, here you are. Uh, so courage to be you, inspiring lessons from an unexpected journey. Uh, what's your takeaway from, from this experience, writing the book? The biggest, biggest it's thing. been a little different than I thought it would be. I, I didn't set out, actually, to write a book. I was encouraged to write a book by several people, especially my son, actually the therapist that I went to for a long time encouraged me to write a book because he said you can help a lot of women uh, as you talk about the things you've been through and how you've handled them because all women go through difficult things. And then my son, who did Larry's second book, said, Mom, I'll help you write your book. And he encouraged me. So it wasn't that I wanted to do it. I wanted just to put my history down for my family. But as it evolved, Deseret Book wanted an inspirational type book for women so it kind of all came together you mentioned earlier um you, you felt like that's this experience in the lds temple you did, where the the gentleman told you that larry's going to be famous helped to maybe prepare you for to 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 handle the um the stewardship you might you might call it the the businesses you're okay. going to own and the the including the public uh businesses like the jazz um, I wonder what your thoughts are on that now. And you, you're, um, you're, you're head of the Larry H. Miller Education Foundation, the Larry H. and Gail Miller Family Foundation. Um, you're coming to speak to um, United Way of Cache Valley. I wonder what you would say about, about that side of things, giving back to the community. Well, I think as you go through life and you establish yourself and you create your, your foundation, and you can provide for yourself that you don't need a whole lot. You just need, you know, I, I always say food, clothing, shelter, some recreation. Uh, and then beyond that, what do you do with it? And there was a point in our life when Larry said, okay, we're at a point now where we can start doing some philanthropy. And it was a natural because we never did have a lot of requirements in our personal life and so taking the extra money that we were earning and doing something to help other people came naturally for us and it and it was very gratifying to be able to do that and I think we can all do that to some degree we don't all do it on the same scale but when Larry passed away I was the one giving the money away, it was, for me, quite an eye-opener to understand that it isn't just giving money away, it's being responsible with it in a way that you can do the most good for the most people, and you have to be careful about your decisions of how to do it, who to give it to, and what it's going to be used for. So it's not, it's not easy. I mean, it's not simple. Mm. I guess that's the best answer I can give you. Yeah, well, that, that's good. Um, the last chapter is called Your Voice, Find It, Use It. And uh, you've been on quite the journey. I guess we, we all are, right? Uh, you'd say, I learned to say my name and claim my identity. I discovered how often I was subjugating my opinion in subtle but damaging ways. W where do you think you are now? And uh, you, you feel like you've found your voice? I do. I feel like I have become pretty confident in who I am and what I'm doing. But I think it's something that's hard for a lot of women to take their rightful place in expressing themselves, in having an opinion, in feeling valued, in doing things that they want to do but might be afraid to do, especially in the business world, a man's world. 
So I think finding your voice and using it means don't be afraid to develop and to be who you are inside, using your talents and your your thought processes and your abilities. Use them to your advantage because they'll always help someone else. Women need women, especially to, to mentor them. Do you, do you have women approaching you asking for advice? I do, a lot. A lot of women's groups, and we've We've organized a women's group at work to help prepare them for advancements and and to be able to be heard and have camaraderie and listen to each other, share ideas, build their strengths. And then, of course, there are, there are a lot of women's groups coming up uh, all over, but Utah has quite a few. So I think it's a good movement. I think mm-hmm. I'm not a women's liber, but I do believe that women have a lot of abilities that they hold back and deny themselves of, of feeling the satisfaction of using. Hmm. You have a daughter, I believe. Do you have granddaughters? I have a lot of granddaughters. Yeah. What, what, do you, <laughs> yeah. What, do you, what do you say to them? Well, the same thing. We've also created a women's group in our family so that these girls can get their education, get their experience, or be a stay-at-home mom, whatever they want to do. But don't just sit and do nothing. It's too important in this world. There are too many areas that you can serve and help people that they need to, to feel useful. One final thing um, I was interested in this near the end of the book. I was trying to find it here, but I'll, I'll remember it. When Larry was dying, your youngest son, uh, who greatly admired Larry, said, well, I, I'll use you as a yardstick, right? I'll, right. Uh, I'll measure myself against you. What, what did Larry tell him? Oh, he said he he was flattered, but don't do that because he needed to measure himself against himself. That was enough. And you can't live your life trying to be somebody else. You have been given unique talents and thought processes and opportunities, and you only have one life, and it needs to be your own life. You can't live someone else's, and you can't replicate anyone else's. So it's really good to dig down inside and develop what's inside of you and be the best you can be. Well, we've reached the end of our time here. Uh, the book is Courage to Be You, Inspiring Lessons from an Unexpected Journey. It's from uh, Deseret Book. The author is Gail Miller, along with uh, Jason F. Wright. And uh, Gail Miller is uh, coming to Logan. She is the keynote speaker at the annual fundraising dinner of uh, a United Way of Cache Valley. And tickets are still available for that. Helps out uh, many organizations in Cache Valley. Uh, that's on May 24th, USU Taggart Center Ballroom. Tickets available at the website, unitedwayofcashevalley.org, unitedwayofcashevalley.org. Gail Miller, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. And you're listening to Access Utah, and uh, our thanks to Gail Miller for uh, giving us some some time there. Very interesting new book and uh, interesting conversation there. Uh, following the break, we're going to talk about the new Sago Awards, which is uh, our awards honoring female entrepreneurs and business leaders in Utah. Uh, here is a quote from Allison Liu, one of the founders of the awards. It's difficult to be a woman in business in Utah because you're a minority, and there are a lot of obstacles you have to overcome. She goes on to say one of the major, one major issue for women is raising capital to get their business up and running. We'll be talking with Allison Liu, one of the founders of the awards, and we'll be talking uh, with Jenny Wecker, one of the winners of the awards. That's following this break. Next time on Philosophy Talk, neuroscience and free will. Many neuroscientists deny that we have freedom of the will. Well, they haven't read philosophers who've shown that free will is compatible with causation. But is compatibilism true or just a fantasy of empirically obtuse philosophers? Well, that's a philosophical question. Neuroscience and free will, next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. On the next Radio Lab, when somebody has a brain injury and commits a crime, who do we blame? Was it the person's fault or was it something about his brain? I did idiotic things that I couldn't stop myself from doing. My brain made me do it. Because I have these neurological problems. We're just going to say, you're blameworthy. I looked into his eyes and it was like a soul in hell. I didn't want to do it. Blame. That's on the next Radio Lab. Join us tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our thanks to Gail Miller, our uh, 
guest in the first half of the program. This half, we are focusing on the new Sago Awards, which honor female entrepreneurs and business leaders in Utah. And uh, we're going to be talking with Allison Liu, founder of Braid, a Utah company that provides workshops for entrepreneurs. She's a co-founder of the Sago Awards. Allison Liu, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We uh, are glad to have you. We're also talking with Jenny Wecker, founder and CEO of Fawn Design, which makes designer diaper and uh, parent accessory backpacks. She won a Sago Award for fastest growing company under five years. Jenny Wecker, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. We appreciate you being on with us as well. So let me start with Allison Liu. Why Sago Awards? So I run a workshop series and networking meetup for women entrepreneurs, and our overarching goal is to help women find economic independence through entrepreneurship. Um, So when my co-founders approached me about doing – and awards to really increase the visibility for a lot of the amazing women that I know and interact with. It just made sense. We can, a lot of the awards that exist for entrepreneurs within the state weren't really recognizing these women. So we wanted to, um, to do something for them because I think that a lot of women, instead of kind of circulating and, and pushing their name out a lot. They they just kind of focus on building their business and um, creating revenue and um, just kind of fly under the radar. And you uh, and, and that could be damaging right down the road because you need to network? You need to, to raise capital? Is that the, um, the problem? You or? don't always need to raise capital, but if people don't know about you, it is harder to raise capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of our women entrepreneurs do, um, they bootstrap and they're able to be very successful that way as well. Hmm. Uh, so Jenny Wecker, you, uh, how'd you find out about Sago Awards and uh, what, uh, what does this mean to you to receive an award? Yeah, so I heard about the Sago Awards because I'm actually um, connected with Braid and then the other co-founders have another group called Convoy, which is just a group of uh, um, entrepreneurs who get together and travel. And so I heard about it through both of those groups um, and have been a a big advocate ever since I heard about it. Um, And then, yeah, winning it has been really exciting. Um, It's actually opened a ton of doors already. I think it's it's only been a week since the actual awards. And I've met with three different investors. Um, i been in quite a few, um, uh, you know, news things online and in the newspaper, you know, and now on the radio. So it's just it's opened a lot of opportunities for me. Mm. So it's been amazing. What, uh, what what kind of doors? What what have you needed, and what what's this going to provide for you? Um, I think for me, the biggest um, kind of decision right now is taking my business to the next level and what that looks like, um, and. So for me, being able to have people who've done it before approaching me of like, hey, we can help you do this, or even to the offer, um, um, I'll probably have the opportunity to actually sell my business in the next year if that's something I want to do. Um, and both of those things felt pretty out of reach until recently. Um, so I think just being able to connect with people who've been there before and can kind of say, this is what the future can look like for you. Um that's put a lot of uh, things with my business in perspective, for sure. Mm. I want to I learn a little bit about each of your businesses, uh, maybe starting with Allison Liu. To, uh, tell us about Braid. Sure. So Braid is just two and a half years old, and we started actually as a city program um, while I was at, at Provo Mayor's office doing business development for them. And I was going to a lot of events and not seeing very many women. But I know that we have amazing women entrepreneurs in our community, so I was wondering why they're not going to these events to make these amazing connections and um, learning from the resources and the people that we have here in Silicon Slopes. Um, so I brought together a focus group of business leaders in the community who are women, and um, from that group, 
Braid was born, um, some of the things that we talked about that kind of are obstacles for women um, in getting out to these events and, and really engaging in the community are that um, a lot of these events are held at times when it's more difficult for them to secure childcare, whether their babysitter is still in school during the day or um, if their partner is at work, and it's easier for them to attend events that are in the evening when they can have a partner at home to watch their children um, or their babysitters out of school. So most of our events are in the evening. Um, and then we also wanted to create a space where women felt comfortable asking questions and really learning. Because when you are um, the minority sex in a room, it can be really intimidating. Um, and you don't want to let on that you maybe don't know um all the concepts that are being talked about in a workshop or in a seminar. Um, and so we create a really safe space. So all of our events are designed with women in mind. We're, um, we're inclusive, so men can attend our events to their skills base. So we cover topics like social media marketing or basic trademark law, um, building a business plan. But our main goal is to help women build their businesses. Mm. Uh, Jenny Wecker, I'm reading the, an article on Sega Awards Desert News. They're quoting you, walking into a room with confidence helps anyone take you seriously. That's that's something you work on, something you suggest to women when they walk into a room uh, in a business setting? Yeah, I think for women, especially in business settings, you know, it's primarily men. They instantly feel intimidated. They don't know where to stand, who to talk to. Um, and I learned that early on that if you walk in with confidence and be the first one to approach someone else and strike up a conversation, um, people immediately are drawn to you. They want to talk to you. They want to get to know you. Um, so I've tried to do that. I also don't think it hurts to stay up to date on, you know, sports or other things like that that you are interested in and that you can find a common ground. Um, and that's something I try and do, and it's, it's helped me quite a bit, I think. Interesting. So, so that you can <laughs> you can navigate this world where, where the room's mostly full of men, I guess. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, tell me about Fond Design. How did that start, and uh, and and how did you build that up? Yeah. So I started Fond Design um, about four and a half years ago, and uh, we do di- stylish diaper bags. And it actually started out as a handmade business. I used to actually hand make every single bag that we sold and it was funny because I wasn't pregnant, didn't have any kids, but I had a friend who was telling me that she couldn't find a diaper bag that she liked and she was just going to use some cheap backpack or whatever and I was like, I feel like I could make her something cool and give it to her as a gift and so I went home that night and started drawing up, you know, designs and I came up with a couple months later what's still our original bag today. It's this half circle shaped bag um that's kind of our signature thing and um i made a couple prototypes and then i finally made the final one and gave it to this friend at her baby shower and um there was a bunch of other girls there who were like hey i want one can you make me one i'm like sure i guess i could make another one and it just kind of spiraled from there um and then about a year of doing all the sewing i was kind of getting burnt out of you know, spending four hours on each bag at the sewing machine. And so um, my husband and I decided that we wanted to take the leap and get the bags manufactured, and we didn't have any money. We were living in my parents' basement, super poor, and um, we tried to get a loan, and every bank we met with was like, "Uh, you haven't made any money. Why would we loan you $20,000? And so we decided to do a Kickstarter campaign to help raise money so we could start manufacturing. And our goal was to raise $25,000 in our 15-day campaign, and we ended up raising $42,000. So for us, not only did we now have more money than we thought we would to start manufacturing, but we also had that validation that people actually wanted our product besides our, you know, friends and family. Um, So kind of from there, the last three years, I've just been – building a business without really um, knowing that that's what I was going to do. And I've since had two little kids in the mix as well. So I'm 
busy juggling being a mom and a CEO and um, managing my team and manufacturing and operations. And, um, yeah, so it's a little hectic over at my house, but I like it that way. You say down the line, you when you grow, you might sell the company. Um, yeah, I think so. Why would, I guess, uh, get the financial security of... Life less, less hectic, what uh, what would be your goal there? Yeah, definitely a combination. Um, but I also think, too, um, I think Fawn Design for me is really a stepping stone to kind of my greater purposes in life. And I think I would love, you know, to start doing something else uh, to keep that creative juices going. I think, um, yeah, but, I, but it's hard, too, because I can see a pretty big future for my business as well. So I'm kind of in this spot right now where I'm just trying to decide, um, you know, do I sell? Do I take on investment and grow it even bigger? Um, I kind of feel like I have two really good options and it's, you know, it's not a good and a bad. It's just what, you know, what I really want for the future. So that's kind of where I'm at, just trying to weigh all of those things. Let me turn back to Allison Liu. Um, you obviously have a passion for for helping women and women entrepreneurs and women in business. Um, what do you talk a little bit about uh, how you came to name the awards after the? I guess it's the Sago Lilic. Yes. So we were brainstorming with our team. Um, we wanted to have something a name that that was feminine, but not really super feminine, but also kind of um, communicated strength. So the sago lily is not only the Utah State flower, it also blooms in really difficult climate. It blooms in the desert. Um, and and that's, that's kind of, you know, kind of like the climate that our women entrepreneurs grow their businesses here in Utah. Um, it can be... Um, you know, it's hard for anyone to, to start and grow a business, but I think that women do face some unique challenges, um, with being a primary caregiver for their children, um, with the networks that they have, especially if they're coming in, um, not, not being a graduate of a business school, um, and they're doing a lot of things from scratch and being very creative and very resourceful, um, as, as they're creating revenue streams, as they're developing their products. And that's something that we wanted to celebrate is the innovation, um, the know-how, and um, the extreme resourcefulness that our, our women entrepreneurs bring to the table, really, really intelligent women that we are so um, so proud to know. Uh, this is sort of opposite the way I'm doing this because the, I think you've just answered this question. But just to, to nail this down, um, Reading the comment section, this is the, the version of the story on KSL.com. It's always uh, dangerous to read comment sections, but this one's, uh, I think, a question some people might have. This is D-Truth. He's saying uh, that he's a, a entrepreneur, and he says, hey, it's not any harder for women. It's hard for everybody to be an entrepreneur. He goes on to say, I've failed in several businesses. Um, and uh, I wonder if you could maybe address that, that uh, the specific challenges that women have. Sure. I think that I I don't disagree. Everybody everybody who starts a business faces risks and has you know economic pressures. Um, but I think it's oh it's more common for women in Utah to be the primary caregivers for children, um, and that and they don't have a lot of infrastructure that's a support there for them. Um, while men who start a business may not be, like, are often not the primary caregiver for their children. And that's, I mean, that's a big responsibility, um, both economically and just kind of on a regular day-to-day basis. Um, and that's something that women... Um, are, are you familiar with Pam Perlich? Uh, no. Oh. The U. oh, yes, 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 huh? She's a demographic researcher. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, something that she's found in her her studies is that women who do not have children do not experience the pay gap, the gender wage gap. And so if you choose to be a mother and you choose to start a business, um, it's it's difficult 
because you don't have, there's not a lot of infrastructure in Utah um, to support you as a caregiver for your children. Um, a lot of our community, they struggle to find reliable and high-quality daycare, even if they can afford an in-home nanny. Um, it's difficult for them to, like, even if they're able to pay, it's difficult for them to find someone who's reliable or find a service who can provide care um, for, you know, more than eight months at a time for their children. Mm. Um, and that's not something that most men in Utah face as a challenge as they're building their business. They're not expected to be the primary caregiver for their children. Um, and so they don't, right, that's just not a challenge that a lot of them face. And, you know, some do. Of course, some men are the primary care, caregivers for their children. But for the large majority, like, of our women entrepreneurs, like, most of them are the primary caregiver for their children. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, it's an economic, um, it's an economic, you know, even obstacle, like, as they're building their business mm-hmm. because of the times that they need to work in order to juggle daycare um, or care for their children. And, um, you know, it's, I wouldn't say that it's an equal playing field as far as caregiving for children in mm. Utah between well, men and women. Right, right. We have uh, reached the end of our uh, time. Interesting uh, discussion. The new Sago Awards, you can find more information about uh, those at sagoawards.com. They honor female entrepreneurs and business leaders in Utah. We've been talking with Allison Liu, a founder of Braid, a Utah company that provides workshops for entrepreneurs, and she's a co-founder of Sago Awards. Allison Liu, thank you so much. We also uh, thank Jenny Wecker, the founder and CEO of Fond Design, uh, and she's a winner of Sago Award for fastest-growing company under five years. Uh, thank you thank to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And our thanks to Gail Miller, owner of the Larry H. Miller uh, Group of Companies, who was with us in the first half of the program. Again, she'll be at the United Way of Cash Valley's annual fundraising dinner on May 24th, and you can find more on that at their website, unitedwayofcashvalley.org. Thanks to everyone. Thanks for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.